Welcome to the Legal Toolkit, bringing you the latest legal trends and business initiatives to help you manage your law firm. Here are your hosts, experienced lawyers, writers, and entrepreneurs, Heidi Alexander and Jared Correa. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to another episode of the Legal Toolkit on Legal Talk Network. If you were looking for This American Life, we're only just a small segment of that. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. If you're a first-time listener, hopefully you'll become a long-time listener. And if you're the Rio Olympics Committee, I think I have dysentery. I'm your host, Jared Correa, and in addition to casting this pod, I'm also a law practice management consultant who evidences a little too much affection for one James Taylor. You can buy my book, Twitter in One Hour for Lawyers, from the American Bar Association, on iTunes, at Amazon, and probably at Revolution Books in Honolulu, Hawaii. Here on the Legal Toolkit, we provide you each month with a new tool to add to your own legal toolkit so that your practices will become more and more like best practices. In this episode, we're going to talk about options for litigation support. I'd like to start, however, by thanking our sponsors. Scorpion delivers award-winning law firm web design and online marketing programs to get you more cases. Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms, just like yours, attract new cases and grow their practices. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Amicus Attorney, developers of legal practice management software. Let Amicus help you run your practice so you can focus on what you do best, practice law. Visit amicusattorney.com and get started today. Our guest today is Cash Butler, the founder and CEO of Clara Legal, a vendor management platform for law firms and legal departments. Cash helped to build two early stage service providers, Steelpoint Technologies and Lextranet, that had successful exits. He spent over 14 years in various leadership roles with those providers and their subsequent acquiring companies, Zantaz and Merrill Corporation. As a stalwart of the litigation services industry, Cash has played a pivotal role in some of the most widely publicized lawsuits of the past decade and has experienced the full spectrum of litigation discovery projects. He has a BA in marketing and communication from Boston College and an MBA in e-business and operations from Bentley University. He does, however, hail from Ann Arbor, Michigan, so go blue. And Cash, welcome to the show, my friend. Hi, Jared. Thanks. Great to have you in. So uh, let's get started. I want to start with sort of a baseline question here. So we're, we're treating this like a polygraph. At what point should law firms start considering the use of litigation support services? Um, is, is the threshold point just, I'm really overwhelmed? Or is it, uh, you know, hopefully uh, something before that point? Well, hopefully it is sometime before that point. You know, law firms, particularly litigation law firms, should have a stable of providers that they know and they are comfortable with so that they can execute work in a timely fashion. That said, sometimes that's not always the easiest thing to do for smaller law firms who may not have a large litigation support team that have the time to be able to do that. So you know, there are some consultants and some other folks that can help guide people to the service providers they need when they need them. That said, once again, you know, be as proactive as possible. Yeah, so it sounds like the solution would be to start as early as possible, just getting information on vendors, and then before you make your decision, having as much information to go on as possible. Yeah, knowing what you need, knowing who, who has those services, really will shorten the timeline and improve your uh, chances of having a successful interaction with them. So let's talk about corporate legal departments 
versus law firms. I think most attorneys out there view the inside in-house counsel role as some kind of holy grail. They all want to be in-house counsel. So is it more like the Monty Python version in real life? (laughs) And does the engagement point for outside vendors change in that environment? So in the corporate legal departments, there's what really takes on two sort of facets, two sort of paths. Mm. You know, large corporations that are highly litigious tend to have preferred vendors that they want their law firms to use. On the other hand, there are some other corporate legal departments that trust their law firms to, you know, make sure that they get the vendors they need to do their work. So it's really a mix. At the end of the day, what it really should be is a collaboration where the corporations and the law firms understand whom the vendors are to to work on their particular litigation and make a selection based on value. And that could be partly price, partly service offering, partly, you know, some form of specialty item. Um, But at the end of the day, it really should be a collaboration. It'll take some of the uh, frustration and uh, improve the transparency and the relationship between the, the corporation and the law firm. And clearly, this has a lot to do with how much litigation a law firm engages, right? I mean, if you've got a firm that doesn't handle much litigation, this is going to be a wholly different consideration. They're going to be sort of jumping into the wilderness versus a firm that does this on a regular basis. Oh, absolutely. A firm that does this on a regular basis tends to have preferred vendors that they use repeatedly. And while someone that doesn't become involved in litigation, uh, particularly e-discovery vendors, you know, they, you know, it's a very episodic situation, and you yeah. know, they may not know who to get right off the get-go. Yeah, so uh, episodic like Homer's uh, The Iliad. No, did he write that? Yes, he did, but I digress. Um, so let's move on and talk a little bit about another topic that relates, I think, to support services for law firms, which is uh, project management. Only recently have law firms and legal departments started to adopt project management principles. What, to your mind, are some of the fixed processes that should be in place for vendor selection among law firms and law departments? And I I guess I should start by asking is, are there processes in place or are they still sort of winging it? I think most organizations still tend to wing it. That said, some are more uh, mature in their legal project management practices and vendor selection practices and others. You know, there's a couple of different processes that are in place. You know, a law firm or a corporate legal department may interview three or four uh, service providers, uh, for example, hosted review providers, and go through maybe a six-month period where they, you know, generate an RFP, get their services, get demonstrations, maybe give them some tests to select a particular vendor. On the other hand, there are other corporations and law firms who don't go through that rigor to get to that single provider that's going to do their work for you know some length of time. It could be you know a year, it could be three years. Sometimes it's referred to as managed services. It's really just a preferred vendor that they know and trust, and they you know pre-negotiate some pricing and such. Yeah, and I suppose it depends on how long of litigation we're looking at as well. Um, some of these things get long in the tooth, which I imagine would affect how law firms go about choosing vendors in the first place. Sure, absolutely. The um, you know I'm not quite sure what the average length is, but I've been involved in litigations of, that have been you know five, six, seven years from start to finish, using a host of different vendors to be able to get to that outcome. You know, so that's a that's a good point, Jared. So. Let's talk a little bit about 
aside from the processes in place, who's making the decisions in the first place? And I wonder if there's some structure there that you've seen. Um, is it managing attorneys who decide on what vendors to use? How involved are they in the process? Do they push it to staff? Or is it like a combination of inertia and just, you know, we've always done it this way, so we'll keep using the folks we've used because they send us cheesecake every year kind of deal? Um, you know, that's a great question, and it's uh, a real combination of types. There's the cheesecake factory kind, uh, as you mentioned. There's, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it could be a litigation partner. It could be a litigation support manager. It could be a paralegal. It could be, you know, the managing partner of a small law firm. It could be the corporation telling the law firm whom to use based on a relationship the corporation may have with a vendor or two. Uh, it's all over the place. In fact, I'd love <laughs> to do a, a survey of your your listeners to to figure out, you know, to get to a an understanding of what's the most common way for law firms to select their vendors and who do they who who is that person? Because it is it varies from place to place. The decision makers, the influencers. Mm. Uh, at the end of the day, it should be a person who has the end client. In mind, getting the best value, you know, doing getting three to five bids on, on work, yeah, uh, for the vendor that's going to be, you know, doing their important litigation work. I'm the cheesecake factory kind, by the way. <laughs> if anybody was interested, so I think we just did sort of an informal survey request here. So if folks have input on this, uh, feel free to add that to the comments or contact Cash directly. He'll give you his uh, contact information at the end of the show here. All right, so you know, let's move on to an opportunity for you to preach, right? Because you've been involved in this stuff for a long time. So why don't you tell us, like, what sort of basic principles do you think law firms and legal departments should be applying to their decisions about using vendors that they're not doing right now in any consistent way? So, uh, thanks. That's been near and dear to my heart for a, a long, long time. <laughs> you know, I'm going to preach standardization. And mm. not only standardization, but being able to make the processes that go into vendor selection and managing projects much more clearly defined and uh, you know repeatable, measurable, and uh, easy to execute. You know things like getting three to five bids for your litigation, even if it's a small litigation, it's important. Um, hmm. That keeps your you know the law firm in compliance with normal corporate purchasing. It also you know, allows the law firm to collaborate with their end client, whomever that may be, on the selection of a vendor to do their, you know, important uh, legal services work. Things like um, mm -hmm. getting to a standard contract quickly and easily, uh, scoping work in a clear fashion, and then bidding on the work, being able to do comparisons. I mean, it's one of the reasons people don't go out and get a lot of bids on jobs. It's a pain in the neck to compare the different, uh, the way yeah. people, you know, the different service offerings, the way people, you know, describe how they charge, what they do. It's, um, you know, it's challenging. It's a very fragmented, non-transparent uh, market. Yeah, well, I think those are all good suggestions, common sense suggestions, in fact, um, which, yeah, I know law firms don't always apply those necessarily. On that note, let's take a quick break. We will be right back, however, before you know it, with more from Cash Butler of Clara Legal. These days, law firms need to do more with less. 
Making this happen requires efficient, cost-effective tools that work the way that you do. Available as a desktop or cloud solution, Amicus Attorney Practice Management Software improves the organization of your firm and drives your bottom line. Visit amicusattorney.com to discover how you can join the thousands of lawyers who rely on Amicus every day to run their practices. Not getting enough cases from the internet or the kind of cases you want? Scorpion can help. Over the last 15 years, Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms just like yours to attract new cases and grow their practices. During this time, Scorpion has won over 100 awards for its law firm website design and online marketing success. Join the thousands of law firms that partner with Scorpion and start getting more cases today. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for coming back, everybody, but where else did you have to go, honestly? We're continuing our look into vendor management with Cash Butler of Clara Legal. All right, Cash, let's talk a little bit now about what law firms and legal departments tend to use for litigation support, because I think part of the problem is there doesn't seem to be a significant process in place, but part of the issue is that lawyers, especially lawyers who don't do litigation regularly, might not know where to go. Um, I think most folks are aware of the increasing importance of e-discovery, which has been ongoing for a long time. But what other major categories do you see in litigation support that vendors are covering? Oh, they're they're covering a lot. In fact, I, I do want to go back to e-discovery after I yeah, go for answer it. that. You know, court reporting, you know, depositions, transcripts, trial graphics, trial yeah. preparation, information governance consulting, and confer consulting. There's a number of different... Uh, thing, expert witness, a uh, number of different services that uh, law firms on a regular and repeated basis need to use. They need to outsource to get these uh, experts or services. Um, back to the e-discovery. Yeah, hit up e-discovery a little bit. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, so lots of times it's, you know, smallish to mid-sized firms. They may not think that e-discovery service providers are affordable. You know, years ago it was two or 3000 dollars a gigabyte of information which was just you know astronomical it's you know you can get that now for certainly under fifty dollars a gigabyte so you know with the importance of the you know the different federal rules of civil procedure and all the different you know requirements for attorneys to know about e-discovery and they're on the hook for their vendors you know there are you know very economical great solutions out there that they can use in addition, you know, lots of times uh, some folks would get work from a corporation or, you know, an individual that would need e-discovery and they'd pass it on to a larger firm that may have some internal capabilities or more experience mm. with that kind of stuff. That said, not necessarily needed anymore if you get the right service providers to supplement your legal team at a real valuable price. It can be done and it should be done. Well, that sounds good. More options, sounds like cheaper options, but you just got to know where to look. So let's talk a little bit then. I mean, some of those that you covered, expert witnesses, uh, e-discovery, I think if attorneys thought about it for a little bit, they would think, okay, those would be litigation services that I'm aware of that I would use. So how about lesser known aspects of litigation that might be outsourced that attorneys might not normally consider or necessarily consider? Can you name some categories there? Well, certainly the consultative categories regarding Forensic investigations, um, you know, the various types of information management, early case assessment uh, situations mm -hmm. that can be used. It's probably more corporate in nature. Yeah. 
but they're, you know, these things pop up all the time. Uh, for instance, I mean, I guess this is still under e-discovery, but, you know, new social media are popping up every day. You know, it starts off with yeah. email and then moves to Twitter and, oh gosh, uh, Pinterest and whatever, you know, all these <laughs> other things. Well, that's electronic data that needs to be collected. I mean, it could be chat, text, uh, Bloomberg messages. You know, there are tools out there that allow you to collect that kind of information if needed in a, in a litigation. So, you know, as fast as these tools are brought to the market, so, you know, someone has to quickly follow behind to make sure they have something that can, uh, you know, satisfy the legal requirements regarding collection and processing, hosting, and all that. Hmm. Yeah, so related to investigation, forensics, that makes sense. Did you know that there is a, a version of Pinterest out there for men, which is called Gentlemint? I feel like I should tell people about this. I don't know if you've heard of that, but that is actually a real thing. I'll take your word for it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I need to get offline a little bit more. So let's talk a little bit about some consumer pressures that are out there for law firms and law departments. Last episode I did uh, for the Legal Toolkit, we talked about consumer behavior in legal. And whether the consumer is a client of a law firm or a general counsel who is using outside counsel, there's always this issue of uh, pushing costs down, controlling costs. So how important is it in that context for law firms to choose vendors wisely and to keep their own costs down in selecting vendors? Oh, uh, I think it's important across the board for, you know, selecting the proper vendor at the the right value point from the end client through the law firm, you know, with alternative fee arrangements and the constant pressure of price reduction. It's not just the CFO telling the general counsel to reduce your legal costs and, you know, be able to budget forecast properly, which is very difficult today's day and age. It could be a person or a company that doesn't have just, they just don't have that much money. Um, Mm. And you need to do this in a very cost-effective manner, and it can be done. For law firms, you know, if you have a million-dollar budget or, you know, a $50,000 budget, it doesn't matter what number you put on it. For the legal work, do you want, you know, 50% of that to go to a vendor as a pass-through cost? Or would you prefer to have 20% go to, or 30% go through to these outsourced vendors and, uh, Either take the rest of the money, you know, for your own margin or maybe share it with the end customer to, you know, help uh, get some more repeat business and such. But this price pressure is not going away. Uh, There's lots and lots of – and by the way, transparency and improved quality. It's not just the price, the dollar amount of a bid. It's the way people execute. It's the reduction of rework. It's uh, you know reduction of you know ambiguous instruction. Um, there's efficiency gains that you know for large litigations may actually be more cost effective or improve your costs than actual bidding. Yeah, and you also talked about alternative fee arrangements, which is an interesting aside as well, because obviously that lawyers and law firms who use alternative fee arrangements almost necessarily have to be more efficient. So we talked a lot about process before. Let's get a little bit real with that and talk about when you've selected a vendor, you're your lawyer, you've got your vendor. How do you as an attorney manage the relationship with that vendor to make sure that it goes smoothly on a more personal level? Do you have any advice as far as that's concerned? Well, the best advice I have is to clearly communicate your need back and forth with your 
vendor and your legal team, because generally it's a partner, associates, paralegals, etc. Keeping the communication clean and clear and understood by everyone is a very, very important way to have a good relationship and end up with a good result while doing this kind of work. You know, I was a service provider for many, many years, and Mm -hmm. I would say 90% of the quality incidents, maybe even higher, were a direct result of a miscommunication or Mm -hmm. a misunderstanding of a communication or even just the game of telephone tag where, you know, someone sends an email to then someone speaks to another person. Next thing you know, what started out as an apple on one side of the equation ends up as a Mount Everest on the other. It, it can really go crazy. And we see it all the time. So yeah. centralized communication that everyone understands, you know, having a playbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think lawyers often struggle with figuring out what the best communication platform is for relationships that are not necessarily normal for them or usual like the client relationship. And even then they have sometimes they have some issues. So we have time for one more question. So let's finally address like the next outsourced job that you have as a law firm or a law department. So how can those entities best conduct reviews of vendor engagements after the fact in order to improve those interactions the next time around? So like how do you hold the postmortem and then improve your process moving forward? Well, at the start of the engagement, you need to define some results that you want to see, something that's measurable. Um, For instance, the scope of work. You measure your initial scope of work, and it's going to change. Discovery is called discovery for a reason. Um, <laughs> but, um, yep. you know, so your original scope is going to change as you learn more about the situation. And, you know, things settle. So, you know, what could have been a six-month or a year litigation may be a three-month, depending on what's going on in the, in the case itself. So, you, you know, you start off with something measurable. You keep it simple. As far as the things that you want to understand better, how are the communications between parties? How do people handle change? Mm-hmm. How do people handle crisis or tight deadline situations? You know, how did people report so that the information that each team, either the vendor team or the legal team, is as close to real time as possible? And yeah. not only report, but respond to the report so that you can really have a, you know, drive towards a good outcome. But it's, it's got to be measurable. Well, this is, I think those are really good suggestions. And as somebody who has tried to stay as far away from litigation as possible uh, in his legal career, yours truly, uh, I think this has really been enlightening. Sadly, that's going to do it for another episode of the Legal Toolkit. If you're feeling nostalgic for my dulcet tones, you can check out our entire show archive anytime you want at LegalTalkNetwork.com. So thanks to Cash Butler of Clara Legal for spending some time with us to talk about litigation support options for law firms. Now, Cash, how can folks find out more information about you or about Clara Legal? So finding more information about me is real simple. It's www.claralegal, C-L-A-R-I-L-E-G-A-L.com. Contacting me is simple again, cash, C-A-S-H, at claralegal.com. And... Um, you know, we're you know these these the topics that we talk about today are very near and dear to my heart. I started Clara Legal to solve some of these problems of procurement from the, both the buy and the sell side. So, you know, we have a vendor management platform that helps people select vendors and get comparison and multiple bids. 
you know, understand what the pricing is in the marketplace. And then we go further in helping communicate and track projects after the engagement has been uh, created. So this is a, a good topic that I'm very passionate about. Cool. Well, there's your process, folks. Thanks again, Cash, and uh, thanks to all of you out there for listening, uh, except for you, Bill Lambeer, you big baby. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Cash, I had to. I know you're <laughs> a Detroit right. guy. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to Legal Toolkit, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Heidi and Jared for their next podcast, covering the current business trends for law firms. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. for a podcast that was created for new solos? Then join me, Adriana Linares, each month on the New Solo Podcast. We talk to lawyers who have built their own successful practices and share their insights to help you grow yours. You can find New Solo on the Legal Talk Network or anywhere you get your podcasts.